American military members have lost their lives in war. These servicemen have lost their lives for the benefit and sacrifice for their country and the freedom that we enjoy. They've given their lives that we might enjoy freedom. And in a far greater and more significant way, not to diminish those lives in any way or the freedom that we enjoy in any way, we have a far greater sacrifice from a, the God-man who has given his life to give us freedom that lasts eternally. True, eternal freedom that has come from the Lord Jesus Christ. He laid down his life as an offering to, first of all, free us from our sin and to reconcile us to God. His sacrifice is the basis of our salvation. There is no other way. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no other salvation offered to us. Eternal salvation comes only based upon the work of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice also is an example. His sacrifice was not for the sake simply of example. That is where so many religious teachings goes terribly amok. As if Jesus' life was simply an example. Jesus' life was so much more than an example. It was what we needed to have eternal life. To provide us with eternal righteousness and eternal forgiveness. But Jesus' life also does serve as an example of the kind of love that is to be displayed among God's people. It is a love that will display God's character in the church. We talked about this last week. God's character is to come to display in the church so that the world can see that Jesus didn't just come and make an impact for 30-some years. But Jesus' life is still active because Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, far above all principality and might and dominion and every name that is named. Jesus won a victory that has reaped an eternal dividend forever and now. It's temporal and eternal. It's in time and eternity. This is what Jesus has won on the cross. And the, the church in our dealings with one another is to be a reflection of that kind of love. And in that, that reflection, both the world and the angelic realm sees a picture not only of love and of Jesus Christ, but of the very glory of God. Now, as we discussed last week, Satan is an opponent of God's glory. Satan does not enjoy seeing God glorified. And so he opposes anything and everything that would bring glory to God. Which is why we see destruction of created beings in the form of abortion. We see a destruction of the creation by senseless living and the way that people treat the natural resources that we've been given. And we also see over and over a destruction of the unity and love within the church. All of these things are a reflection of God's glory, and Satan opposes 
the glory of God. So when we see the call for the church to love one another and to dwell together in unity, we can be sure that Satan will oppose it. And he does. And so we see many times in our New Testament letters the call for unity and even more specifically the call for us as the body of Christ to love one another. As we've come to this point in our study of the book of Galatians, there is a call toward this kind of living. In verses 1 through 6 of Galatians chapter 5, we notice that Jesus Christ has set us free and we're to stand firmly in that liberty. In verses 7 through 12, what we notice is that that freedom that is in Christ is opposed. It's opposed by Satan. And as we come to the next section, verses 13 through 15, it really is an entryway into the rest of the chapter. And and this is what we are going to look at under this heading. Freedom in Christ is productive. Freedom is in Christ is productive. God doesn't just say, stand firm in your freedom, and then here we are just like stuck. That's it. No, there's far more to it. And he starts to warn us against the, the laziness that can come from our flesh, thinking, well, God's done all the work, and so now what? He, he starts to open up our understanding it, to, to understand this. If we have been set free, and since we've been set free, that freedom that is ours has an outworking. That outworking is fruitful or productive. Look at what he says beginning in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If you want to just summarize what verses 13 through 15 is all about, it is really about serving one another out of the love that has been established in our lives from God. through The freedom that has been purchased for us comes with it the Spirit of God. And when the Spirit enters into the individual, God's love is shed abroad in our lives. That's what it says in Romans chapter 5. And so through love, serve one another is the emphasis of verses 13 through 15. But he starts with a warning He says, first, you were called to freedom. We got that. He's been telling us this, so we've established it. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What is he saying here? Because the condemnation of sin is removed, and the requirements of God's commands have been fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ, there could be a tendency to sit back and do whatever comes naturally. As you look through the rest of this chapter, what Paul's going to do, the Spirit of God is going to do, is he's going to contrast what comes from our natural man, us, and what comes from the Spirit of God. He's going to contrast that. Now, the question we have to answer is, who is he talking to? Believers or unbelievers? 
He's talking to believers primarily. There may be some unbelievers in the audience, certainly in, in the text here, and maybe in the congregation here. Someone that doesn't quite know that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Maybe someone that has not embraced Jesus alone as the eternal Savior and has their, their home in heaven secured by him. Certainly in this audience in the scripture and possibly in this audience here in the 21st century, we may have some that are not believers in that sense. But the address is toward believers. And so he's telling us there is a way in which in our freedom from bondage and our release from condemnation and guilt and the, the, the reality that all of God's commandments have been fulfilled in Christ and because I'm in Christ they've been fulfilled for me, I might sit back and say, all right now, I'm all set. And I'm just going to do what comes naturally. Well, let's see, folks. What comes naturally is not good. So let's take a look at that for just a second, beginning in verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Now, works of the flesh is that's what comes naturally. He's talking to believers. So this is what comes naturally for believers as well. When we're not empowered by the Spirit, this comes naturally. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. In other words, being driven by our senses, our taste and our smell and our, our sight and our, our uh, audio and, and our feeling. All of these things. Our senses, our gut. The flesh leads us to do what the gut tells us. What your inner being says, verse 20, the works of the flesh are idolatry, sorcery, enmity, that's being at odds with others, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. How serious is this? Well, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What he's saying is this, these products are products of the fleshly life. These are products of the Gentile world. These are products of unsaved man. And he's warning us not, because, not to operate in this realm because we've been set free. We've been set free, so don't allow these things to control you. How, how, how specific does he get? Well, back in verse 15 he says, but if you bite and devour one another, what is he warning of there? What's he warning of when he says don't bite and devour one another? Well, in verse 20 at the end, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Uh, earlier, enmity and strife, jealousy. So, see, he's, he's taking what he's warning them about and saying, this comes from unsaved man. This comes from the resources of an unregenerate heart. And it can come out of us. Yes, you've been set free. Praise God. As someone who's been set free, who knows Christ, who has eternal redemption, don't feel comfortable doing what comes naturally. Because what comes naturally 
ends up just like what came before you were saved. And those who do that and live out their lives without redemption don't enter the kingdom of heaven. This is not who you are. He's warning us, don't allow our flesh to rule us. Instead, he opposes that, that kind of natural living with serving one another. He says, but through love, serve one another. He says that in verse 13. What a great statement. Instead of allowing your flesh to rule you, let God's love rule you. And God's love is a serving love. This love results in the fulfilling of the the law. It says in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's just dialogue about that just for a second. Actually, it'll, it'll be more like a monologue. You can pretend like you're talking to me. When Jesus says, um, what is the the most important commandment, he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And he says the next is like unto it, is to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. So when, when Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says this, he's not contradicting Jesus. His, his thought, you know, there are two tables on the law. There's the first table, um, commandments one through four, four. That is all the ones related to God. Don't commit a, um, idolatry. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't forget the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember that one. Then on the second table, 5 through 10, you have all the ones that deal with the commandments related to men. Don't steal from them. Don't lie to them. Don't steal their wife. Those things. Don't kill them. We're familiar with the two, two tables of the law. When he's talking about the whole law being fulfilled, he's talking about the second table. Now, you can't fulfill the second table unless you fulfill the first table, right? Because... Because obedience to the law always comes from God. So if we're going to fulfill the commands of the second table that relate to men, it's because the Spirit of God is at work in our lives. So the first table is already complete, is is already manifesting itself as completed. And then the second table naturally follows it. Are we making sense here? Obedience to the law comes out of the Spirit's working. And so he says, if you love one another by serving one another, you're fulfilling the law. The whole law is fulfilled because the Spirit's working in you. You're right with God, and then you're right with men. Does that make sense? All right. Paul already told us that the way we demonstrate that we stand firm in Christ is that it's faith working through love in verse 6. Paul said in Romans chapter 13 in verse 8, He says, owe no man anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So this is not something he hasn't addressed elsewhere. Freedom in Christ results in productivity, and specifically productivity among ourselves. Remember, it's going to be opposed. Satan doesn't want unity. He doesn't want love. And so at this very place is where Satan's going to try to divide us and dissect us. And at this very place... The freedom that is ours in Christ is to resound unto love and service. So, with that in mind, let's take a look at a number of passages, briefly, uh, in our New Testaments to help us to understand what this type of love looks like. Take a look, first of all, at Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. What does this type of love look like? Think of no better illustration, of course, than the hero. The hero of every text. His name is Jesus. He is always the hero. And he illustrates 
and exemplifies this perfectly. Romans chapter 15 and verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And he goes on to say, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So this illustration is this. Listen, you're always going to have people that struggle. In fact, you might be that one. You might be that struggler. The failings of the weak. That's what it says in the middle of verse 1. What's failing? Sounds like a definition of sin, doesn't it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is sin? Sin is a transgression of the law, yes. But sin is falling short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It's the the majesty of all who he is. When the believer, when the church, when an individual that's walking in the power of the Spirit has the Spirit dwelling in him and the Spirit's filling him, that, that one fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. The Bible tells us that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 4. When we walk in the Spirit, God's law is demonstrated in our lives. You know what else is dist- displayed at the same time? God's glory. God's glory is on display in our lives when, when God's Spirit works in us to produce the truthfulness of his word. When we fall short of that righteous walk, we fall short of the glory of God. God's glory is not seen appropriately. God's glory is never diminished, but God's glory is not magnified in my life. And as a result of that, I am one of those who is failing, and it's a failing of the weak. And what does the Bible tell us to do when we see a brother who is struggling and, and, and failing? Point your finger down, look down your nose at him, judge him, criticize him, make him feel like a worm? No. Bear with the strugglings, the failings of the weak. Not pleasing yourself. Instead of cutting them down, lift them up. Hey, Christ died for you. Christ loves you. Christ did this on your behalf. The Spirit can enable you to to do the things of the Scriptures. We encourage one another. We bear with one another. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Beginning in verse 1. This passage calls us to walk in a worthy manner. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he's again calling us to this unity. He tells us a worthy walk, one that that exemplifies the reason that we were called is to have a, a lowly mind, a humble mind, and one that recognizes that someone might sin, and sometimes that sin might even be specifically against me. 
bear with one another. Bear with, put up with one another. And then he says, eagerly endeavoring to keep the unity that comes from the Spirit in a bond of peace that also comes from the Spirit. And so he's calling us to peace. Why? Because Satan drives at this. He wants to separate. As he separates, he can conquer. When we're united, there's nothing. He's got no shot. The army of Christ with full battle array on has an impenetrable force. Satan can't launch his fiery darts and pierce us, but instead those fiery darts are extinguished through the shield of faith. This is the benefit of the unity of the faith. It brings, it casts forth the glory of God. By this all men will know you're my disciples if you have love toward one another. As the angelic realm looks upon the church and we're functioning in accordance with God's truth, they look and they behold the manifold wisdom of God. It casts forth a, a, a picture and a, and a radiance of God's glory. Satan wants to conquer and divide that. And the spirit under the Uh, through the word, is constantly telling us, no, this is not the way to deal. Take a look at another passage about this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Sometimes we get the impression that we are really uh, strong and we can do things on our own and we can ward off the onslaughts of Satan by ourselves. And I want to tell you that the Bible casts a different picture. He tells us that he's, he's created the church, he's called out the church, he's ordained the church, and that is a safe haven for us to minister to one another, to protect one another, to guard one another, to build one another up. In 1 Thessalonians 5, this, this passage It screams at me. It screams at me. The reason it screams at me is because my flesh has a tendency of looking toward, hey, listen, you should really toughen up, pal. You should really really be able to deal with this, buddy. Get a grip. Didn't your mama teach you anything better than that than to quit so early? That's of my own natural place. I'm not very um, patient with people having a slowness to get up and move. This passage calls my name and says, you have a responsibility. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, and we urge you brothers... Admonish the idle, so don't just leave them as they are. Encourage the faint-hearted. What does encourage mean? Lift them up. Lift up. Encourage them. Keep speaking truth. Help the weak. Wow, we're, we're, we're kind of taking some kind of a different trajectory here. We, we start with the, hey, this is what we need to do. Hey, God can do this in you. Hey, get up. Let me help you. You see the, the, the transition here from order to support to actual aid. So he's really giving us some instruction here. He says, help the weak. And we might struggle with this last one. Be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. 
don't grow weary while doing good, for in due season you shall reap if you do not lose heart. And so we, we abide with and we dwell with and we endeavor eagerly to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 10. Loving one another has to take place in the realm of time investment. Loving one another has to take place in the realm of time investment. You can't say, oh yes, I love, I love the brethren and not spend time with them. It, it doesn't work. You can't say, I love, one, I love everyone, I, I love them all. The, the passage that we're started from, but through love, serve one another. That takes time. That takes energy. And here in Hebrews chapter 10, take a look, please, beginning in verse 24. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day dawning near. Oh, what is he saying? The day dawning near. Jesus is coming. Do you know that Jesus is coming? Did he, did he promise he was going to come back? Does he keep his promises? He tells them in the first century, the day is dawning. The day is coming. 2,100 years later? That's not really. 2,000 years later? We're almost there, right? I don't know. The day is dawning still, just as it was in the first century. The day is coming. Jesus will come. And while that is the case, since that is the case, our responsibility toward one another is to encourage, consider one another, to stir one another up to what? Love and good works. How can we do that? Well, by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, which some people do readily, without any thought. Eh, church, yeah, maybe yes, maybe no. Got something else to do. Yeah. Mm. Callous, casual, lethargic. People don't miss the the hockey game, they don't miss the baseball game, maybe you don't like any of the sports. You don't miss the things you like, right? Maybe you like the sewing club. Maybe you're, a, maybe you're a, a harvester. You love to do your agricultural things in your backyard. You don't miss the planting season and the reaping season. I don't know what your thing is, whatever it is, whether it's sports or whatever. If you like something, you find a time to do it. It's an investment. It's something you know, I, I, I do this and there's, there's a payoff. Some people are very cavalier about, about these things. And what, what I want to point out to you is the Bible says we need one another. We need one another. It's not like, well, I'm, I'll show up and, and everyone will be graced by my presence. No, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's we need interaction. Presence is great. It starts with being present, right? But if presence doesn't turn into communication... It's lacking part of the benefit. Presence has a benefit, right? More people to sing, more people to smile, more people to, that look nice or whatever. But there's more. And the more is invest. But through love, serve one another. Serving one another involves, and we can't take the time to look at these passages, but just notice them. They'll be on the screen. Serving one another involves supporting emotional needs. We saw that in 1 Thessalonians 5. 
Serving one another involves supporting spiritual needs. Remember in, in Galatians 6, 1, you who are spirit, if any man be overtaken in any fault, any sinfulness, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And then he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which is what? Love one another. Serving is supporting each other's spiritual needs. And then serving one another involves supporting each other's physical needs. And you see in, in both James chapter 2 and in 1 John chapter 3, talks about if you, know, if you see someone that has needs and you just say, hey, I hope God takes care of you. Have you really profited them anything? That's the James passage. Or in 1 John's passage, if you have this world's goods and you see a brother in need and, and you shut up your, King James word, bowels of compassion toward them, you're not loving them. Our real love manifests itself in, in action, in real help. Now I want to just commend you for something here. 30 days. 30 days. 30 days. 30 days since my wife had surgery. 30 days there's been a meal at my house. Every day. I didn't ask for that. I would never say, hey, can you provide meals for me? I would never, I would never ask anyone to do that. Every day. 30 days. Every day. Someone showed up. 4 o'clock, 4.30, 5 o'clock, 5.30, whatever the time is, and they brought a meal. Hot meal, need to be warmed up meal, whatever the case may be. And Almost every single one of them fed us at least twice. That's 60 days worth of meals in 30 days. No wonder I'm getting fat. Thank you very much. What's the point? It's a manifestation of love. You didn't have to do that. No one owed us anything. You didn't owe us one thing. 30 days meal every day. It just is one way we can say, hey, we know what's going on. We, we know you have a problem. We're here for you. This is good, folks. This is good. Was it an obligation? Can I cook? No. Could I have cooked? Sure, I can make some pasta. Sure, I can throw some dogs on the grill or some, some, some meat. But I didn't have to. I didn't have to. You, you guys came up and you said, hey, we're going we're gonna to meet this need. It was awesome. It was great. Back in Galatians 5. You've been, you've been called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use that freedom as an opportunity just to serve yourself and what you feel and what you think you need. But through love, serve one another. When you serve one another, the law is fulfilled. And the contrast, biting and devouring one another, be careful because pretty soon there's not going to be anything left. What does he mean by that? Satan's desire is to destroy. He's cancer. He'd like to melt you from the inside out. And that's what he wants to do to the church. And God says, no. No way. I have bought you for something greater. The love that I have bestowed upon you is to flow through you and every time, folks, this is real, every time you start getting a little peeved with someone else, 
know the source of that peevishness is not from God. Don't give in. Because to give in is to allow Satan an opportunity to, in that scene, diminish and detract from the glory of God. But instead, by love, serve one another and say, that person sinned against me, but they sinned against God first, and they need ministry. They need love. They need Christ. They need to be instructed. They need to be encouraged. They need to be helped. And they need patience. It's so easy for us to bite and devour. And pretty soon, folks, there ain't nothing left. But that is not the plan of God. And that is not right. So Paul calls us to freedom that produces. It's a love that comes from God. If there's no manifestation of that love for others in our lives, what does it tell us about our current situation in our walk with God? I'm not yielding myself to the Lord. I'm not giving myself over to him. Because the product of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc. Love. And that love manifests itself in service. Well, there's no greater love than the love that we celebrate at the Lord's table.